the oil and gas industry, the home of innovation, cutting-edge technology, and the extraordinary people who make it all happen. Together, we're powering the world. Here are the stories of business builders who are leading the way in the energy sector. This is Zebra Marketing Solutions Oil and Gas Business Builders Podcast, where we explore the real experiences of today's leaders in business growth with key takeaways to start implementing right now in our own companies. And now here is your host, Laura Kamrath. Hi there, everybody. Hi, Tim. This is the Oil and Gas Business Builders Podcast. Welcome to the show. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much. Awesome. We have our guest here today, Timothy C. Kim. He is founder and CEO of IBV Energy Partners, which is a leading utility scale solar and storage company with over eight gigawatts of project capacity across the U.S. That's awesome. I'm glad you could join us, Tim. Welcome to the Thank show. You. Appreciate it. And thank you for inviting me. This is a real pleasure to be here, especially Oil and Gas Builders Podcast, which one has a question, why is a renewable energy company on here? So we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> well, on that point, <laughs> why are we here, you know, with a renewable solar guest on the Oil and Gas Business Builders Podcast? Well, um, there has been a flurry of activity in the oil and gas industry recently of oil and gas businesses who've been acquiring assets in solar and assets in renewables. And so why is that? Why are the oil and gas companies acquiring renewables assets? And they're acquiring both development platforms, project portfolios. And this is not really a new trend. The oil and gas industry has always been a big investor in renewables research and just thinking about the future. But I feel like the future is here. The future is now. And so it's important to think about renewables being oil and gas people. How are the renewables investments going to help us get ahead of the curve in ESG and RECs and just two areas, but there are, are other fronts as well. And even just thinking about our planet and the future and even just meeting our energy needs, which continue to grow every year. So it's important to think about how we're meeting our energy needs, sustainability and meeting our company needs, the, you know, the needs of our companies to meet our goals in ESG and RECs. Yeah, no, I, I think you bring up a very good point here. And the question is, why are oil and gas companies, some of the largest ones around the world, actually acquiring development companies in, in the renewable energy space? Not just projects, individual projects, and not just a pipeline of projects, but the actual company and it's all of its fixed assets and whatnot. This question is an interesting one because... If you think about it, yes, oil and gas, they have been involved in renewable energy to climate change in one way or the other for many decades. But it's really the last 12 months that we've seen a flurry of activity. So let me just give you an example. I think last 12 months, I mean, this is just a few of these companies, Repsol, for instance, acquired a developer called Hecate, a renewable energy a solar company called Hecate. Shell acquired Savion and Silicon Ranch. Total acquired Core Solar and Clearway Energy. Enbridge acquired Tri-Global Energy. And the list kind of goes on and on and on. Uh, so what is actually going on here? Let me just kind of start from the, the beginning here, and we'll work our way through this. About three years ago, our company, 
we made a decision to pivot our development strategy from one of general development to that of targeted development, that is targeting decarbonization and even more specifically, scope two emissions of the heaviest carbon companies. So today we're working with fossil fuel companies across PJM, MISO, ERCOT, you know, that the main power markets in the United States, uh, at least in the middle of the United States, to reduce scope two emissions by doing two things. One, selling clean power to service their pipeline and terminal operations. And two, co-development of assets. So they also have an equity stake in the actual projects. You know, the project life cycle of a solar project is about 40 years. It has 40 years that is on par with natural gas and coal-fired power plants. Much easier to repower, by the way, as solar to extend the longevity, extend the life of a solar asset that's already 30 years operating than it is to retrofit a coal or nuclear or that gas plant. Mm-hmm. We believe, and the, and the reason why we, we made this decision is not just financial, not just smart strategic, it's not just scope two, but we believe that from a philosophical approach, it cannot, climate change, tackling climate change, tackling, addressing decarbonization cannot be an us versus nature, that we have, and we've seen a new generation of energy leaders, myself included, including other executives on my team, uh, you know, a new generation of energy leaders on both sides, uh, the oil and gas and renewable energy field. And I find that my colleagues on the other side, especially in the oil and gas world, are just as excited, if not more excited, at the prospects of partnering with renewables companies. Mm-hmm. The benefit to them, to the Repsol, Shell, Total, you know, these companies are, it's not just a matter of balance sheet, right? So mm-hmm. it not just provides emission reduction in scope to areas and improved PR, let's be honest, that's one aspect of it. Greenwashing is, you know, days of the past, but it's also a matter of P&L, profit and loss. Solar, the levelized cost of solar electricity is competitive. Although it has materially increased in the past 24 months due to exogenous and policy implications, so has energy as a whole, actually. But if you look at the energy that comes off of renewables, solar and wind, let's just uh, be more specific there, versus coal, nuclear, natural gas, you see the dichotomy in risks. On one hand, solar and wind has free feedstock. You You don't need to pay for the sun to shine or the wind to blow. So it is quite divorced from the commodities risk that we see in this world, we have seen uh, in many decades. However, the risk is still present in terms of materials risk, mm-hmm. panels, inverters, major equipment, things of this nature, which are very prone to policy changes and federal and decisions at the federal policy level. Mm-hmm. Another reason is that, as you mentioned, RECs or renewable energy credits, or what we call RECs, are also becoming more expensive and valuable. And investing in today's pipeline of REC projects is not just a matter of good decision-making, but buying at today's prices will increase precipitously on an annual basis has real balance sheet implications as well. Mm -hmm. So these are the reasons why we have seen and we will continue to see oil and gas penetration into the renewables market. And I, for one, welcome it with open arms. I think we should actually have a lot more. And I think we will in the coming four or five years. I think the public will be actually astounded by the amount of activity in the oil and gas world that works together with renewable energy companies to target decarbonization Mm -hmm. and increase the value of a lot of these pipelines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
you had mentioned that you and IBV have really led the charge into fossil fuel dominated states like Kentucky, Louisiana, Texas, maybe I'm in Texas, (laughs) (laughs) but you guys are the largest developers of renewable energy projects to date in Kentucky and Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And what kind of challenges have you experienced in regards to breaking into those markets that are so heavily oil and gas dominated? Well, there's the obvious challenges, right, of informing the public of what constitutes renewable energy and the benefits of renewable energy, not just from how does it affect your bottom line dollars, but also tax benefits to counties. Look, anytime you enter a market, a new market, people are automatically suspicious and rightfully so. Rightfully so, right? Because people don't understand it and they want to understand it. The way that we look at breaking into markets and the way we look at informing the public is not one of convenience, but is one of collaboration. In other words, it is upon us to conform and collaborate with a state, county, a municipality that has never seen a solar panel before. And we go to great lengths to inform the public, such as holding as many town halls as we need to, one-on-ones, providing greatest transparency to county officials. But yes, there is a difficulty, that's maybe an understatement even, of breaking into heavy fossil fuel markets. I will say one thing though, Let's just take the case of Kentucky. We signed the very first renewable energy PPA in the history of of the state. Uh, We signed it with Louisville Gas and Electric and Utilities. They own gigawatts of coal-fired generation. Mm -hmm. And it was a club deal. It was actually with LG&E and KU, as well as Toyota Motors and Dow Corning. This plant is 100 megawatts in size, located in Hardin County. Mm -hmm. It sits on private land, and part of it will provide power to the county, and part of it will provide power to the operations of Toyota Motors, which, by the way, they make the RAV4 in in that factory. Oh, Right. I have one of those. <laughs> uh, you should be. You should definitely be cheering us. Then <laughs> they make their mouth right there. And uh, Dow Corning, which is also a major manufacturer in the state, another mm-hmm. major company in the state is Amazon. If you've ever returned anything, if you ever bought anything on Amazon, returned it, just look at where it goes to. It's Kentucky. Okay. <laughs> So it was Toyota Motors and Toyota Motors and Dow that Louisville Gas and Electric and Kentucky Utilities and said, listen, we see the benefit, financial and PR and, and all these other benefits, rec benefits of having clean energy. Can mm-hmm. we try to do something? And the answer to, to LG&E's and KU's credit was absolutely. Just because you are a utility, and I think they've shown this the most, that owns your own generation of coal-fired power plant doesn't mean that you can't work with renewable energy generators. Because at the end of the day, what is your what is your goal if you're a utility? Yes, you want to provide dividend yields to your shareholders, but if you miss out on the bigger picture, which is providing the best customer service and being responsive to your power customers, especially your, your largest ones, mm-hmm. then it's just a matter of time before those dividend yields just keep shrinking and shrinking and shrinking mm-hmm. because they will leave you. And we've seen that in Nevada as well, where several private entities, especially casinos, have left NV Energy's service territory or have left their contractual arrangements and going off and procuring power on their own. Yeah. And it's a big deal. It was a big deal. Back then. And by the way, they have to pay something like $50 million in order to break that. So it's not, again, it's not just greenwashing dollars. Wow. That's crazy. 
Yeah. Speaking of crazy things, I know a lot of people in Texas had concerns. I mean, we went through the Texas winter storm in February of 2020, and we basically, our power grid shut down here, mm-hmm. and we were all sitting in 17 degree temperatures in our homes without heat. <laughs> and I know there's a, a lot of people who believe that was due to renewable energy failures. What is your comment on that? Well, you know, people don't need to take my comment and what I say. It's, it's been debunked. It's been debunked many times. So the articles, uh, the studies, articles, everything is out on, on the internet now. I want to make sure that we get our messaging right and not cross over the lines here, because obviously there were political machinations behind trying to demonize renewable energy in the state. But none of that is true. And if it were true, then one has to then ask himself. These days, with the amount of news, Mm. you can only do so much to convince people. But at the end of the day, I would just ask a simple question. If that was true, then why do politicians in the state, why do elected officials in the state, why do municipal leaders in the state keep on issuing and keep on desiring renewable energy projects to come Mm. online? Why are they pushing for this? If it's such a bad thing. So it's not. I guess not to mention why are they able to run wind farms and solar farms in like Germany and the Netherlands? Right. (laughs) Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think we are not a type of company. We're a very practical company. We lean towards investments and development first and foremost. But I think that there is an understanding now, especially what's going on in Europe, that energy security is economic security that Mm -hmm. cannot be divorced. So Texas is one of the biggest, just Texas alone, Texas, California alone are one of the biggest economic entities in the world. And I think that every time these hurricanes come through, I used to live in Florida for quite some time. The Mm -hmm. question is, is my local utility ready? Will I, in sitting here in a first world environment, have to live in a third world environment for weeks at a time? Or will I be able to make plans that will save my family and take care of my family? And I think that broader question goes to the question of, is the state doing all it can to increase the mix of energy, regardless of whether what kind of energy it is, you know, nuclear, hydro, yeah. whatever, mm-hmm. or is it demonizing one energy platform for another, which always has the, if you look mm-hmm. at many of these other states have done the same, trying to do the same. Yeah, ironically, or not ironically, but I do follow these types of things. And I was actually looking at ERCOT's daily power allocation through time the other day on YouTube. If there's like a YouTube video that you can look at that and just kind of seeing how our power mix has changed over the past couple of years since like 2017. And power usage is growing. And I feel like if we don't like you just said, if we don't embrace every type of power generation that's at our disposal and continue to build that, we may have difficulty meeting our power needs yeah. going forward. So. It is certainty that there will be difficulty. Let's just think about a thought exercise here. If the world population froze today, in other words, no more deaths, right? It's just mm-hmm. nobody aged another second. We just mm-hmm. kept on being the 7 billion or so population that we are. And we take that out 20 years from now. If we do not do anything to increase capacity, there would be blackouts all around the world. Why? Because everything from your device to your vehicles to your home equipment is using up more power. Yeah. The grid is aging. Power mm-hmm. generation like coal, natural gas, and eventually wind and solar, they will age out where their parts mm-hmm. of machinery will break. So it is not a matter of, hey, do we really need this? But it's a matter of, can we get it even faster? Because if you look at your cell phone today versus five years, 
I bet you anything that it uses a lot more power. Mm -hmm. And that's just your cell phone alone. Yeah. You shared a couple articles with me. And one of the really interesting things I thought was these articles talked about how oil and gas companies tend to have a lot of extra land available, their oil and gas leases, et cetera. Mm -hmm where they're not necessarily using that land all the time. And that could be prime location to put solar panels. Can you tell yeah. us a little about that? Yeah. So first of all, the articles, we write a lot of, uh, not a lot, but we tend to write articles consistently. And that's a credit to our communications manager, Matt Chester, as well as our power marketing analytics team headed by Manoj. We mm -hmm. printed three articles in the Energy, Oil and Gas magazine. I believe there's articles 206, 207, and 208. You can find them on our website, our new web website that will be launched tomorrow. It's not on our current website. By the time people see this podcast, if they're not seeing it live, that website will be up. But essentially, we talked about why renewable energy, and we kind of expanded on why renewable energy companies are working with oil and gas companies. And one of the articles we did mention about land and how that could be a collaboration point. If you look at think about a pipeline, right, you have easements along those pipelines, be hundreds of feet, and accumulate all of those easements together that runs either through a state or three states or the entire country. That is a phenomenal, phenomenal amount of land. And that is land we could build solar power plants on. So if you quickly do the math and we've done it, we've taken a look at the layouts and designs. It is feasible that you could power probably half the United States wow. power requirements just by building off those easements. I mean, we're talking about millions of miles of pipeline, right? And if every pipeline has about 100 foot of easement, some of them have a lot more than that, and that quickly adds up. Mm -hmm. So we are working with two oil and gas companies right now. Two of them are very well-known companies, pipeline operators as well, to discuss this, to understand what are their short, medium, and long-term targets, and how do we get mm -hmm. there? How do we achieve that from a cost basis? We lease the land for $1, and the land component is one of the most expensive part of developing solar, that we could cut out that savings and pass it right through them. Mm -hmm. And that's basically for land that's not even being used. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So Tim, I had the privilege of reading your bio before we got on together, and I must say I was very impressed. Tim also held senior roles in international finance for founding IBV in 2017. And he got his start in the renewable energy industry as a deal team member with KFW IPEX Bank, which is Germany's largest international project finance institution. And he also co-founded the U.S. Export-Import Bank's Office of Renewable Energy Finance, which is also uh, very impressive. And he held roles as head of M&A and finance at two renewable energy investment companies, where he directed financial structuring, asset acquisitions, and divestitures and pricing analytics. And he also was an officer in the U.S. Navy. He was deployed to Liberia as a member of the U.S. Military Observer Group and Kuwait and Iraq as a platoon leader and Naval Coastal Warfare Group 1, a key element of Operation Iraqi Freedom. So, Tim, you have a very interesting background. You were military. It sounds like a very impressive military career before you got into the private sector. And tell us a little about you and your history and what led you to founding your company and talk about where you are now, where you came from. Did you have challenges along the way? Of course, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, similar to my background is actually our co-founder, Robin Saez, who's our executive VP and head of development. He also served mm -hmm. 10 years as a U.S. Army officer and then went to go work for some of the largest renewable energy and energy, actually, just energy companies in the world. And then him and I met at a solar investment and development company 
in 2016. I was there from the start. I was born and raised in a small town in, in Southern California. And as, as soon as I could leave home, I decided to just go to the other side of the U.S. So I went to school at NYU. During that, I attained a scholarship in the U.S. Navy. And that gave me the op uh, opportunity to, you know, I'm a first generation opportunity to serve the country while seeing the world. Got a little bit more than I bargained for, to be quite honest, once 9-11 uh -huh. happened. I was an officer in the Navy for about six years, a little over six years, actually got it kind of extended during this uh, time frame and served on ground teams both in West Africa and Liberia during the start of an invasion of Iraq. I thought for a while, actually, of going career. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm perfectly happy where I am today, but one of my very good friends who uh, served with me just got his appointment to admiral. Every now and then I think about, okay, if I had stayed in, maybe I'd be wearing that one or two star myself. Mm -hmm. Then I have to shut that thought down because I kind of get depressed. But, <laughs> I will say uh, there's probably a lot of people that are listening to this podcast, uh, So, and, and many of those have served in uniform. There's nothing like it. There's no feeling like it in the world. It's not about the money. It's not even about yourself. It's about being part of a team, a storied legacy, especially serving in the U.S. military. But after that, I, I left. I went to got my graduate degree at Johns Hopkins University, studied international economics. I went to go work in banking in Germany, where I financed transnational deals in the power and transmission space. I, I wouldn't say that the, there's a lot of written about the transition from military to civilian life. And I could see, I can understand why. I mean, it's uh, depending on what your experience was in the military, very difficult. I didn't find that to be as challenging so much as finding myself in an environment where there are more guidelines and rules, I would have to say. In the military, you work in a very strict environment, obviously, where there are rules that have to be adhered to. And you find out creative ways to meet your goals, even though the rules are not always so flexible. In the private sector, there are more guidelines, right? So how do you get from point A to point B? Well, you could do in the military, there's maybe one or two ways. And in the private sector, there's 100. And uh, sometimes it's kind of like going to a grocery store and seeing 50 cereal boxes. It's a lot easier to actually have two choices in front of you, right? I mean, mm -hmm. rather than 50. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I found that to be kind of interesting, especially working in such a fast-paced environment. But I would tell you that uh, you and I spoke a little bit before this, the, char uh, the challenges of starting a company. I would have to say there are three main challenges that I saw, and that is positioning, capital, and talent. So positioning, you know, mm -hmm. gaining traction, understanding your strategy, and being able to stick to your strategy and not knee-jerking around. The strategies are like a big ship. You, you turn that wheel and it takes a while for your decisions to actually prove out or not. So the fact that we're a new kid on the block, a renewable energy development company, even though this industry is new, the fact of the matter is it's grown old in a very short amount of time. That was a very challenging thing to do. The second is capital. That's probably not new to anybody who started a company. Securing capital, not only for your immediate investments, but for your follow-on activities as well. I'm proud to say that our parent company is IB Fold Group, which is one of the most reputable and probably now the largest pure solar independent power producer in the world. They're also backed by DIF Capital Partners, Dutch Infrastructure Fund, a very large infrastructure fund that understands power generation. And so not having to go up that learning curve and educating investors on what we are doing, how we're doing it was very, very key to us in securing that capital, I think. And then third, always talent, talent, talent. You could have the best positioning, the best strategy. You could have a billion dollars or an infinite amount of capital. But if there's nobody to execute your vision or people who are not the right fit, many business cases have been written on this. It all comes down to talent. And I'm proud to say that I think we have the best staff pound for pound 
in this entire industry. Very, very proud of them and the work that they do. To give you an idea of this, you know, we have eight gigawatts in the queue. That means we have about 50,000 acres under our control across 20 states, almost 20 states. Mm-hmm. We've done this with an average of 14 people over five and a half years. Today, we have 22. The average has been about 14. If you look at another company and you'd say, okay, well, I'm bragging. I'm just stating a fact here. You know, I've looked at many companies, both in, in my banking world outside. The closest company that does this has about 60 people. So we have about one third, roughly. So I think we have the ability to expand to scale. And that Mm -hmm. is always something that every startup founder needs to think about because you may not think you need to scale, but if it comes time that you have to scale and you are not prepared, many companies have gone under because they have grown too fast. And that notion of growing too fast means that they weren't able to scale correctly. And that is something that we think a lot about as well. Yeah, I I agree with you too. And I I work with customers. My company, we do marketing, marketing strategy, and I work with customers too, to get their teams on the same page. Because, you know, even when you have the right people, then you still want to make sure that everybody's sort of marching to the same tune, that, that everybody's aligned with the direction you're moving. Tim, Can you share with us, so you mentioned, we talked about some articles that you guys have written would be interesting to our oil and gas listeners. Could you let us know where we can find those? Yeah, so tomorrow they will be on our new website. We're launching, we're revising our website. So they will be on in the new section as well is in the net zero section. So those could be found, but give us a a day is a hard launch for tomorrow. What's the URL? The- it's www.ibvenergy.com. I is in India, B is in boy, V as in Victor. Okay. ibvenergy.com. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. And thank you for being here. Do you have any last thoughts before we close out? No, it's a privilege to be on this podcast. I think the, the takeaway that I want to leave your listeners with is that m- many folks are surprised of when there is a collaboration between renewable energy and oil and gas down at the balance sheet level. This is going to be, in my opinion, the norm. I do believe that the next generation of leaders in both spaces have an understanding that to tackle climate change crisis, to have a sustainable business in the energy field, you need to collaborate. It cannot be a winner-take-all, zero-sum game. We are doing our part. IBB Energy is working with several oil and gas companies, and look out for our announcements in the future. All right. We will keep an eye out for those. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you. And thank you very much for being on the show. It's been a really fascinating conversation and privileged to have you on. We will keep an eye out for you and IBV's website and information in the future. Thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Zebra Marketing Solutions Oil & Gas Business Builders Podcast. Join our Oil & Gas Business Builders groups on LinkedIn and Facebook and see our videos on YouTube and on OGBBmedia.com. Visit ZMSEnergyMarketing.com to learn more about how we can help you and your business design and implement a marketing strategy to retain and attract customers, grow revenues, and gain market share. Join us on the next episode for more great takeaways from business builders who are leading the way in the energy sector.